Turn your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 50. We come today to the last of our series on Jeremiah, and it's interesting the way the historical narrative of the book ends uh, with a prophecy of the destruction of Babylon. Uh, there's an appendix to the book which was not written by Jeremiah, which is affixed after this, but chapters 50 and 51, the last words that Jeremiah wrote, deal with the coming conquest of Babylon. You remember that for some 40 years, Jeremiah had called out to the nation to repent, or else they would uh, be destroyed and would go into captivity in Babylon where they would remain for 70 years, and then they would be brought back out to their land. The nation did not heed, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar came, and in 587 uh, the city was destroyed, the temple was burned, the walls broken down, and uh, the people, the few that were left, carried into captivity. Prior to the destruction of the city, though, we have this prophecy by Jeremiah. And uh, the first thing that uh, we have is uh, the conquest of Babylon predicted in chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. The word that the Lord spake against against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare ye among the nations, and publish, and set up a standard. Publish, and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken, Bel is confounded, Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart both man and beast. Here's this fact of the coming conquest and ultimate destruction of Babylon predicted. Now, at the time when Babylon is at uh, the height of her strength, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, when uh, she is presently uh, to conquer Jerusalem, uh, this would have seemed preposterous that Babylon could be destroyed. Uh, We, to really appreciate this, need to understand the statistics concerning that ancient city. Babylon was the most unusual construction, a fortress. The statistics, uh, as you'll find them in Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, The city was 196 square miles that had 14-mile sides to it with a 56-mile circumference surrounded by a 30-foot-wide moat. Actually, the Euphrates River, which was a very large river, ran right through the city, right under one wall and out the opposite wall of the city. And... uh, they had dug channels off of the Euphrates River that provided moats all the way around their fortifications and walls, 30-foot-wide moats. Uh, there was no way to uh, 
starve the city out uh, because of the river flowing through it. It provided agriculture as a number, a wide portion of the land inside was under cultivation. So uh, it was very difficult to set siege to this city. Uh, she had double walls. The outer wall was 311 feet high, approximately the height of a 30-story building. Uh, 87 feet wide, you could park 11 cars abreast on the top of the wall, or eight chariots abreast. It had 100 gates of solid brass. You couldn't burn the gates. 100 gates of solid brass with brass hinges and lintels. And 250 watchtowers that were 100 feet higher than the outer wall. Tremendous fortress. And here, Jeremiah has the audacity to predict its conquest. Isaiah had predicted the same thing over a hundred years prior to Jeremiah's time. And uh, you find that in Isaiah chapter 13. Now, we not only have the fact of the conquest predicted, but the means of the conquest, how it would be accomplished. You have it mentioned that it would be done through a northern army in verse 3 of Jeremiah 50, out of the north there cometh up a nation against her which shall make her land desolate. In uh, verse 41 of that same chapter, we're told that it would involve many kings. It says... Uh, Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the coast of the earth. And in chapter 51, verse 11, it says, The Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his device is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord. We have it predicted that it will be a northern confederacy under the Medes, actually the Medo-Persian Empire, with the various kings that they had made tributaries, were the ones that would come against Babylon. That's the way that this prediction was fulfilled. So, as a matter of fact, uh, Isaiah, in uh, Isaiah 13:17, had designated well over a hundred years prior to Jeremiah's time that it would be the Medes who would come against uh, Babylon to destroy it. But another aspect of the methodology that would be used is brought out in chapter 50 of Jeremiah, verse 38. A drought is upon her waters, and they shall be dried up, for it is the land of graven images. That these moats would be dried up, and her waters would include the Euphrates River, this gigantic river that swept right through the city. Her waters shall be dried up. What actually took place has been described uh, by Xenophon and by Herodotus in their writings of ancient history. And again, we have Josh McDowell summing this up for us. What took place was that uh, the... Medo-Persian army under Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, came and laid siege to the city of Babylon. 
but they were making no progress in taking the city. There were two men within the city, two uh, leaders who defected to Cyrus. And uh, right at that point, one of Cyrus's advisors, a man by the name of Chrysantus, made the observation that if the Euphrates River were somehow turned out of its channel, that the riverbed was deep enough and wide enough that you could march troops right in under the wall of the city. So Cyrus started his troops digging a channel to divert the river. And this would dry up the moats. It would also dry up the riverbed. And then he had these two traders who had come out of the city to lay plans of how to take the city from within the walls once they marched their troops in under the wall through this dry riverbed. And that's what took place. It took place on the night that a great feast was being made as uh, the Babylonian leadership, the king, Belshazzar, and his nobles were mocking these pitiful efforts of the Medo-Persian uh, troops to take the city. They were having an annual feast to their God. And you remember it's described by Daniel as to what took place. And in the midst of this feast, as they call for the utensils that they brought from Jerusalem, and they're drinking out of these, and suddenly a hand appears on the wall and writes, Many, many tekel euphorsin. No one can read it. The king's loins shake and his knees smoke together, it says. Uh, they didn't hit, they missed. And uh, uh, he calls for Daniel finally as a, a wise man. And Dalian comes and says that he can read the writing. And thou art weighed in the balance and found warning this night. Uh, you will be overthrown. And that's the very night that the troops marched in that the river was diverted, the troops marched in and took the city virtually without a fight. The king was slain, and uh, Cyrus, through uh, his general Darius, the Mede, takes over at that point. Uh, the method, isn't this fantastic, that well ahead of time, before Cyrus is ever born, Jeremiah depicts the exact methodology that will be used, the drying up of the waters, uh, and names the group that will come in and con uh, conquer the city. The reasons for the fall of Babylon are given. First, her idolatry. Uh, in uh, verse 2 of Jeremiah 50, we saw where it says, Bel is confounded, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. Uh, this city was given over to idolatry. Uh, an inscription has been found by the archaeologist uh, which excavated Babylon. It was excavated in uh, the 1850s and then around the turn of the century and again in the 1950s. And they found an inscription which says, Altogether, there are in Babylon 53 temples of the chief gods, 55 chapels of Marduk, 300 chapels for the earthly deities, 600 for the heavenly deities, 180 altars for the goddess Ishtar, and so on. Uh, given over to idolatry. 
That was one reason for its fall. And when we think about that, we need to remember that you don't have to have a literal idol to be guilty of idolatry. Is America given over to idolatry possibly today? As we worship pleasure, as we worship sex, as we worship material things, a city totally given over to idolatry. That was one reason for her fall. A second reason is the persecution of God's people. In verse 11, Because ye were glad, because ye rejoiced, O ye destroyers of mine heritage. God brought Babylon against Israel, or against Judah, to punish his people for their sin. But they rejoiced over this task. They rejoiced over uh, the siege of Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem. And here's a second reason. Their cruelty, their delight in persecuting God's people. Third, their pride. In verse 31, it says, Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. These are the reasons given for God bringing about the downfall of Babylon. The finality of this downfall is described in chapter 50, verse 39 and 40. Therefore the wild beasts of the devil of the desert with the wild beasts of the island shall dwell there, and the owl shall dwell therein, and it shall no more be inhabited forever. In verse 40, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell therein. The total final overthrow is predicted. Now that actually took place in stages. When Cyrus went in, in 539, October 539 B.C., Cyrus took the city. He didn't destroy the city. He left all the principal buildings standing. He made it something of a subsidiary capital to Persia, the medio persian Empire. But uh, over the years, uh, those who were in Babylon tended to rebel against the Persian rulers. And uh, several times the city was taken again. And finally, Xerxes in 482 B.C. destroyed the city. Alexander the Great decided to restore the city and set about it, but uh, died shortly thereafter and didn't complete the task at all. And around 300 B.C., the city just passed into ruins. Now, over against the prediction that it would be destroyed ultimately and that no man would dwell therein forever, would never be rebuilt, here's a prediction made 2,600 years ago that it would never be rebuilt. And it hasn't been to this day. By way of contrast, uh, you have Israel uh, and God's prediction that Israel would return to its land and Jerusalem would be rebuilt. In chapter 50, verse 18, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon in his land as I have punished the king of Assyria, and I will bring Israel again to his habitation. He shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. And uh, in chapter 51, verse 5, Israel hath not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. He had punished Israel, but it wasn't a final destruction. They were his people. He would bring them back. They were not forsaken, even though they had sinned so badly. The finality of the fall of Babylon, the fact that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and continued, these predictions. The finality of the fall of Babylon is symbolized very dramatically in something that's recorded in uh, chapter 51, starting with verse 60. It says that uh, Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah prior to its being finally taken by Nebuchadnezzar, that Zedekiah had a man by the name of Sirach, whom he was sending as an ambassador to Babylon. And uh, as Sirach is preparing to go to Babylon in the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign, that Jeremiah writes in a book concerning the coming destruction of Babylon. And he gives it to this ambassador who's to go there and represent uh, Jerusalem in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, when you get there, I want you to read the prophecy of the destruction of Babylon. Uh, in verse 63 of chapter 51, It shall be when thou hast made an end of reading this book, thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her. And they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So we have this uh, dramatic depiction of just how it would sink, never to be rebuilt. Now this is uh, all extremely significant from the standpoint of, once again, the confirmation of the Bible as the Word of God. The Bible is so bold in that it doesn't hesitate to make predictions just like that and then let history prove them to be true. Can we trust the Bible? You have this type thing upon top of this type thing in Scripture where hundreds and thousands of years God tells what's going to happen, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. Peter Stoner, in Science Speaks, uh, took the various prophecies about Babylon that we've been speaking of and uh, statistically estimated the possibility of this coming about by chance, that all of this would be fulfilled just like we've seen it fulfilled in history by chance. And uh, he estimated the possibility as uh, 
1 in 5 times 10th to the 9th power. Just uh, totally inconceivable that this could have happened by chance. The odds are tremendously against it, which points us to the fact that the way Jeremiah knew this, the way Isaiah knew this, was God guided their minds through the Spirit of God as they wrote and as they predicted these things. We see the conquest of Babylon predicted. Second, the counterpart of Babylon in every generation. Babylon was a real city, but it symbolized something else. It symbolized the world. Over in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle is in the Spirit, and he's taken into the wilderness where he's shown a woman upon a beast. This is recorded in uh, Revelation 17, verse 3. He carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and uh, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered, what is this woman? who bears the name of Babylon the Great. Some think that uh, this is John's way of depicting the apostate church, that portion of God's visible church that doesn't remain true to him. But that's not right, because the woman is called a harlot, not an adulteress. An unfaithful wife is an adulteress. This woman is a harlot. She doesn't depict the apostate church. She depicts the world. The world in all of its allurement, in all of its seductiveness, as it would uh, draw us in and draw us away from God and keep us captive. It's also depicted uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 18 when it falls as a great city that falls. Uh, it says uh, in chapter 18, verse 2, that an angel cried mightily, with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. And when this happens, he says uh, that all the kings of the earth and all the merchants and all the ship uh, builders and uh, those who sail in the ships, shipmasters and others, weep. The reason they weep, they say in verse 11, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore, the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones. And verse 14, The fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. The things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee. Thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches 
is come to naught. What's that all about? That's the awful sense of loss that those who live for this world, and those who live for her pleasures, those who live for her applause, those who take her as their portion, materialists, those who, no matter what they profess with their lips, are actually living for the things of this world and are conformed to this world, that's their awful sense of loss when they find that all that they've lived for destroyed, burned up. You see, Babylon was never to be rebuilt, but Babylon constantly reappears in every generation because the world is here. In uh, Jeremiah's day, Babylon pictured and summed up man in all of his self-will as he lives his own life, his own way, living according to the values that he wants to live, worshiping the things that he wants to worship, seeking what he wants in, in this world. That was best represented by that Babylon. In John's day, Babylon sat on seven hills. What was it? Rome. That was the best picture of that form of life. In our day, if we were to picture the world, what would we picture? America, maybe? And all of its worldliness? Or New York, or Paris, or whatever? Birmingham? All of its worldliness. As people live for these things. And of course... The fact of the fall of Babylon speaks of the fact that every Babylon, every contemporary Babylon is going to fall. Babylon will always reappear and it will always fall. And the ultimate fall will be when Jesus Christ returns. We're told that God is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It says, seeing that we look for these things, let us be diligent that we may be found without spot or blemish in that day. Be found in him. Be found clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When he returns in the, in the midst of these flaming worlds, that I'm clothed in Jesus Christ. When all that other men have lived for pass, passes into nothing. The counterpart of Babylon is the world and all of its allurement. And those who live for it, who are a part of it. Are you a part of Babylon? Is that the city that you really belong to? We see the counterpart. Third, the coming of the Jews to Zion. In verse 4 of Jeremiah 50, In those days and in that time when Babylon is, is conquered by Cyrus, saith the Lord, The children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Notice when they would be released, when Babylon was destroyed, or when it was conquered by Cyrus. That would be the release of the Jews. Cyrus, uh, we read in uh, 
Second Chronicles and in Ezra, that Cyrus, one of his first acts as he took over uh, in Babylon, was to send the Jewish people back to their land, all who wanted to go, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple. And he even helps financially in the project. And uh, so it's predicted that this release of the Jewish people would take place. That's a picture of a much greater release. The release of a soul from the world. The release of a soul from Satan who controls that soul and the world. That's what's pictured in this release here. Notice how they go out. It says, In those days that the children of Israel shall come, Judah and Israel together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward. Alexander Stewart, a Scottish preacher of several generations ago in preaching on this, says, Notice the description of the return from Babylon represents the abiding experience of a believing man. Notice a contrition, a contrition which is accompanied by action. They are going and weeping. It's not weeping without going. The pilgrims whom Jeremiah saw not only wept but walked. Godly sorrow worketh. And in the repentance which is the fruit of that working, there is a definite turning to God. But on the other hand, the homeward journey of the exiles was not a going without weeping. It wasn't a weeping without going. It wasn't a going without weeping. There may be an amendment of life in which there's no real contrition, no real repentance. But the true penitent weeps as he goes. Not necessarily literal tears. But his heart is broken for his sin and from his sin. So they go and they weep. There's, their repentance is genuine in that it leads to action, to change. He says, there's a seeking which bears the mark of sincerity. The pilgrims are asking the way to Zion, and they are asking it with their faces thitherward. He says, there are many who profess to be on the way to Zion whose back, rather than their face, is toward the city. They claim to be stepping heavenward, but their eyes are fixed on the things of earth with an intentness that belies their profession. Others, again, belong to the family of Bunyan's Mr. Facing Both Ways, for they hope to enjoy the benefits of religion when they die, but they are eager to secure the advantages of the world while they live. And there's a further company who expect to arrive in heaven at last, but have never turned their back on anything. They are still in the place of bondage. The return of the soul to God, however, must be authenticated by practical evidences. Aspiration must be accompanied by renunciation. They have a deep humiliation of soul. They have a determination to give themselves to the Lord. They say, come and let us enter into a perpetual covenant with the Lord, which shall not be broken, not be forgotten. Let us give ourselves to the Lord fully. Have you done that? Which direction is your face in? 
Is there a weeping and a going and a going and a weeping? Are you on your way to Zion? Is your face set? Do your actions indicate that? Or are you Mr. Facing both ways? Or do you profess to be on your way to heaven when you haven't renounced anything? We see how they would go. Through whom it would be affected. He said, well, it was affected through Cyrus. Well, not really. It was affected through their Redeemer who sent Cyrus. In chapter 50, verse 33, you read, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. In other words, their Redeemer would deal with those who held them captive and would give rest to them as they journey to the land of Zion. Their Redeemer, of course, is the Lord of hosts. Our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sets us free, not from a literal Babylon, but from what Babylon pictures, the world. And he deals with the world. And he breaks its chains. He breaks the chains and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Christ, by his death for our sins, and by his resurrection in which he conquered Satan and death. He becomes our Redeemer. He paid the price. That's what redemption means. He paid the price to set us free. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, enter into a covenant with Him where we give ourselves to Him and surrender, we are set free. We're on our way to Zion. Our faces are thitherward. There's a weeping and a going. There's evidence. There's action. There's godly sorrow that works as the changed life that indicates real freedom. The final point, the counsel to flee Babylon. In verse 8, Remove out of the midst of Babylon. Go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans. There's the counsel to flee. Babylon's been conquered. The door is open. You don't have to stay there. Come out. In chapter 51 and uh, verse 6, it's put like this. He says, Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Or as it's put over in Revelation Flee out of the midst of Babylon and be not a partaker of her plagues. As the counsel, Christ has died. Christ has conquered the world. Christ says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's conquered our enemies. And all we have to do is flee out of Babylon. Put our trust in him. Surrender to him. Walk with him. Move out of Babylon. Quit being worldly. 
What's the call that John says? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of, the life, the pride of life. These are not of the Father, but of the world. The fashion of this world passes away, he says, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What are you living for? Come out. Flee. If you live for the things of this world, you'll partake of the plagues of this world. When Babylon falls like a lead in that Euphrates River, you'll go down with it. If you're too close to it, you'll be burned. Get out! Renounce the things of this world. Commit your life to Christ. To Christ. Set that face Zionward and get it off of the things of this world. This is very comforting to the Christian. Over in Revelation 13, it speaks in verse 10, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword shall be killed with a sword. This is the patience and the faith of the saints. In other words, when God tells us that our enemies who conquer us and persecute us will be conquered, and that he will deal with them, that's very comforting. That enables us to persevere. That's the faith of the saints. It puts steel in us. As we go through oppression, we know that God one day will deal with the Babylons of this world and with the world itself. Where are kings and empires now of old that came and went? But Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years. The same, unbroken as eternal hills, Immovable she stands, a mountain that shall fill the earth, a house not made with hands. God's church, God's people shall stand when all else crumbles. What about it? Have you heeded that counsel to come out of Babylon? Is your face Zionward? Is there evidence of that? Is there a weeping and a going? Why not today? really come out of Zion, all the way out. Let us pray. If you've never committed your life to Christ, or if you have committed your life and you yet still are living far too close to Babylon, far too much entangled with the things of this world, backslidden, why not repent? Why not in your, life, in your heart tell Christ, that you are aware of the folly of that, and that you turn and renounce the things that you're living for, and you want to live for him, whatever the cost. But if you've never committed your life to Christ, why not right now do that in your heart as you sit here and pray like this, Lord Jesus, I understand that I'm captive in Babylon, and that you've conquered the world and can set me free. Lord, I want that freedom and I respond to your call to come out. I trust you as my Savior. I surrender to you as my Master. Come now and enter into that covenant with me that will never be broken. Amen.